But when you feed that beta agonist and you kind of turn back his biological clock back to when he was more of a muscle making growing calf, all of a sudden he's not really prepared for that. And having the right amount of zinc to help support things like protein synthesis, we have lots of research now that says that will help capture and keep that protein on the carcass, which is obviously what we, where we want to want to have it. It's not a universal truth that all minerals necessarily need to be fed in higher amounts. So more is better. It's not always a great adage in mineral nutrition. We kind of want to be not deficient. We want to be adequate, but we don't want to have too much. A whole new era of communication in the beef industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds of the global beef industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to the farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. Healthy Farms by Bioverse, your manure management experts. Contact us for time and labor-saving solutions. Mycotoxins can threaten cattle performance. DSM offers a portfolio of solutions to help mitigate the impact of mycotoxins in your feed. Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and everything that's working in the global beef industry. Welcome to the Beef Podcast. I am one of your hosts, Brandy Buzzard, and it's my pleasure to bring you the trending issues and topics with the best and brightest minds of the beef industry. Today, we are joined by a very special guest, one of our hosts, Dr. Stephanie Hansen. Dr. Hansen is a professor in feedlot nutrition in the Department of Animal Science at Iowa State University. An Iowa native, she earned her bachelor's from Iowa State and her master's and PhD from North Carolina State University. With nearly 100 peer-reviewed papers and more than $10 million in competitive funding, the goal of her research program is to refine mineral requirements of cattle, especially related to optimizing growth and resiliency to stress. Dr. Hansen has received many early career awards in research from Iowa State University and the American Society of Animal Science. Dr. Hansen is a passionate graduate student mentor and teaches undergraduate and graduate courses in animal tr- nutrition and vitamin and mineral metabol- metabolism. She co-hosts a different podcast on graduate mentoring called Mentoring Matters. And Dr. Hansen also raises Angus cows and enjoys hiking, photography, and travel. So thank you very much. Welcome to the welcome to the podcast. I feel like that seems silly to say to you because you're here every week, but welcome. I'm so excited to get to know you better and to learn more not only about you, but more about your research programs and the things that you enjoy in the beef industry. So um, I guess to start off with maybe just... Well, welcome first, but tell us, you know, how you got involved here and and how you got so far in the career path that you're on. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, first of all, totally agree. It's awesome to see you IRL, right? In real life here, I guess, if you can say across our Zoom screen is in real life. Right. I think we were both at the Midwest Animal Science meetings this last spring and we- Oh, really? Like, yeah, I think we were ships passing in the night there because I saw you post about it the next day and I was like, oh, Brandy was there and I didn't, I was at the the same award ceremony or whatever, just like sitting in the back, but- Yeah, my husband got an award- um, I don't remember the name of the award. I feel bad. Hi, please don't be mad at me. Um, But yeah, I was the one that was massively overdressed in like an evening gown because I thought that it was like a big awards banquet. And I got there and there were people, I have nothing against khaki cargo shorts, but there were people in khaki cargo shorts. And I thought, wow, I'm out of place. So um, I hadn't been to Midwest in a while. I hadn't been to Midwest since I was in grad school. So I was a little out of the loop, but yeah, it was good. I'm I'm sorry that we, that we, 
missed, you know, didn't cross paths in person there because that would have been a good reason to, to catch up. Yeah. Well, the real question is, what northern Wisconsin kid was the one wearing khaki cargo shorts in uh, Madison, Wisconsin in March? <laughs> um, no, I was not as not appear to be like a graduate student. Appear to gotcha. Be. Yeah. And there was more than one person. I mean, it was it's not a business. I mean, if you're not presenting, I guess you don't have to be a business professional. So, yeah, yeah. I'm um, just not but, sure it was warm enough for shorts. <laughs> well, I don't I mean, I, I agree. I do not. I also do not think it was warm enough for shorts. Um, but yeah, I just, the moment I walked in the, I guess that atrium there that was, and I walked in and I was like, oh, this was a, this was a bad idea. The dress was a bad idea. So, um, but I'm very proud of, of Hyatt for the award he received. He worked really hard for the, and, and earned like deserves all the accolade. And so, yeah, I was there to support him. I don't usually go to Midwest meetings, um, yeah, I hadn't been there in a long time and hadn't been to national animal science meetings either in a really long time. So it was good to get surrounded by the science community again. Yeah. So, um, all right. So circle back to answer your yeah, question, how I got kind of, and- <laughs> yeah, no, it's good. Um, so I was raised in a small town in Northwest Iowa and my grandparents raised limousine cattle. And I distinctly remember the Thanksgiving evening where my grandpa and I were both kind of standing next to each other, looking out the window at the cows. And I said something really innocuous, like, why don't we do anything with those cows? And let me tell you, it was about five seconds later that I was signed up for showing beef steer in 4-H the next year that transitioned into some leadership roles in the Junior Limousine Association. I was never on the pre-vet track. I always wanted to be on the side of preventative. Um, you know, I didn't want animals to get sick. I wanted to see if we could figure out the ways to prevent that. And I quickly found a passion for that in nutrition. It's really awesome. I went to Iowa State University, majored in animal science. I was My light bulb class was Animal Science 419 Advanced Nutrition, where I sat there and listened to the instructor talk about nutrition. And I thought, holy cow, this is so cool. I was such a nerd about it. And I teach that class now. Oh, that's so And so, fun. yes. So I always tell students on the first day, like, this was my light bulb moment. Um, kind of the rest of it was really just, um, you know, that definition of luck is the ability to recognize an opportunity when it prevents itself. I got really lucky with some people who were like, you should go to NC State. We think you'd get along great with Jerry Spears. I really didn't know much about mineral metabolism, but it would be impossible to not kind of pick up the mineral bug from Dr. Spears is just infectious enthusiasm for it. He literally wrote the chapter in the NRC on minerals and vitamins. Oh. Um, fast forward through my master's and PhD, I was even more of a mineral nerd than I was at the beginning. Um, I applied for one faculty position. That was the one I got at Iowa State. I was super weird. Yeah, I applied. Yeah, I applied. Um, hadn't even taken my prelims yet in my PhD when I applied and interviewed and actually signed my contract the day before I took my prelims. So it was meant to be, I guess, um, to get to come back. We have a time and labor saving product for you. Beef and dairy agrislat by Healthy Farms is your solution. No more lugging jugs around the barn every month. With beef and dairy agrislat, you simply drop the slat through the floor twice a year and it works to break down solids, reduces crusting and forming. To learn more, visit MyHealthyFarms.com. How long are prelims and when you, is it called, when you get your PhD, is it called defending? Is that the same? Like, yes. Okay. I, I do that with your master. I remember. So how long for that 
between the finishing prelims and defending your PhD was there? Yep. So typically you take your prelims around your second year and then we'll defend your PhD, you know, around the end of your third year or so. So I took my prelims in March of 2008. I, or give or take, I defended um, like that next year or that later that fall actually. And then um, stayed for a brief postdoc just to kind of learn some more grant writing skills and stuff. And then came to Iowa State in part because we had some fabulous research facilities, places where I could really see us being able to do mineral balance experiments. I could see the great collaborative opportunities that we were going to have with everything from meat science to muscle biology to immunology. And those are all great collaborators that I have now. So yeah, now I've been at Iowa State for 14 years and have graduated one or two graduate students. And yeah, I've had a very busy, busy career so far, which has been really fun. That's great. Um, okay, so I'm a logistical nut. So you signed the contract in March of 2008, and they're just like, okay, we'll see you in a year and a half or something like that. And that's okay? Or how does that work? Yeah, pretty much. Um, Iowa State actually helped support my postdoc, but I stayed there at NC State. Um, so I did that because the goal was explicitly to get me more grant writing experience. So coming out of Spears' program, you know, he was kind of still of the era where People sent him checks to do, you know, just go do some mineral research, Dr. Spears. We really need to know about this. And, you know, or they still had some federal funding just coming in carte blanche to the university. Those things are were long gone by the time I started on faculty. So our funding is strictly through whatever internal or external grants we get, like through the USDA or doing company funded research. So that was obviously a really important thing that I needed to be a successful faculty member. And so kind of figured out to mentor with another faculty member there who was a successful grant writer actually in poultry nutrition. And so we did some other research under her. And then um, I moved here to Iowa in uh, July of 2009. Wow. Well, that's okay. That Now I understand. Thank you for clarifying that. I, I stopped after my master's. I had had enough. So I'm not in tune to that whole process, but that's great that they were so supportive and um, helpful to, to get you through that process. Um, so to my understanding, and please correct me if I'm wrong, you have a greater teaching appointment than, or larger teaching appointment than like extension or research. Is that right? Nope. I'm actually majority research. So I'm like a 60, yeah, I'm like 65% research and then I have a 30% teaching. So my teaching is going to be that advanced nutrition class, some graduate vitamins and minerals, and then I have some undergraduate advisees as well. But the majority of my appointment is research and I don't have a formal extension appointment but we have the amazing Iowa Beef Center that is our beef kind of extension group at Iowa State. We're right in the same office suite. Our students frequently get the opportunity to outreach or extend our research findings um, out to the field with them. So they might go to a producer field day or they might write a fact sheet or get to produce at our beef showcase that we do. Um, so just really great opportunities for those grad students, regardless of whether they're on a path to extension or not, to figure out science communication, right? Okay. All right. That's Yes, I understand. That's that's great. Um, that's a, super important to have those like different tenets, and um, because you are, you said sixty forty the research, uh, the research and the teaching part. Like, although you don't have a greater appointment than on teaching than research, like, what is your favorite? It's obvious that you love teaching and mentoring because you're a you co-host this other podcast that we're going to get to in a minute. But I guess like, what's your favorite thing about teaching? Um, and like, how do you prefer that over research or, or maybe something like that? Because I know that you are not alone in as a professor or as a, an academia of like having to balance one versus the other. And they're not always 
um, you don't always get to give equal time. So like, do you prefer one or the one over the other? Um, I'm just really interested in that because I think it's really important to, to examine the, the drivers behind that. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I would say that there are days when teaching is very satisfying and days when teaching is like bashing your head against a wall. We could probably say the same for research, right? Like there's days that are more frustrating than others. Um, I love seeing the light bulb click in the student, right? And teaching advanced nutrition means that they've already taken the required junior level nutrition. They're either taking my class because they backed themselves into a corner and they need a class to graduate, or hopefully they're there because they're really interested in nutrition. So I've got a little bit of a captive audience to begin with. And so we can get more in depth on concepts. We can help them to hopefully tie together their previous three years of education, everything from biochemistry to genetics, et cetera, you know, bringing that all together in our advanced nutrition class. So I would say that the best part about teaching is especially when you get somebody who's really enthusiastic about it, somebody who will be like, I'm going back to the farm and I know that this is going to be so important. Nutrition is 65% of my cost of production. How can you help me you know, understand that so I can do it better? Or I'm going to vet school and I understand I may not get as much nutrition there, but for whatever reason, people are going to think I understand nutrition at the other side of a veterinary degree, right? So you know, I really want to make sure that those kids are prepared for a successful career. Well, that's that's really great. Um, I can I could see how that would be how you could have days where you want to like beat your head against the wall. Like I could understand that, but it must be really rewarding when you have students who are invested in the content and like like you were talking about the light bulb moment. Like um, yeah, that must be just really rewarding. Um, I mentioned this earlier, but we're gonna dive into this now. Like so, you're you co-host this other podcast called Mentoring Matters. Um, which seems very similar to teaching. So can you just tell us a bit about that? Like, what do you talk about? What, you know, how did you get into this? Like, you know, just, I guess I'm just really interested in learning more about this. Yeah. So in, uh, I think it was March of 2021, you know, we were still kind of in some of the pandemic times and I like to joke that apparently we didn't have enough going on. And so I was like, let's do something new. We'll do it. Like I heard this joke one time on a podcast that says it's actually a citizen requirement of the U S if you are a citizen of the U S you must have a podcast. And so I was like, Oh, I don't have a podcast. I should start a podcast. I feel like we all have podcasts. Yeah, Yeah, you're right. I'm, I just co-host. I didn't start one, but you're right. Like seems like everybody is on one or has one or, or things like that. So, um, yeah, absolutely right. Uh, And, and they are a great resource, right? So podcasts are a great resource. And, uh, the, the more, more serious, less joking answer is I could see a significant gap, right? I could see that mentoring graduate students was one of the many things that we are not explicitly taught during graduate school and yet expected to do well as faculty members, We either learn how to do things right or how to do things wrong, depending on how the faculty members around us model it. And I, especially in the pandemic, that became really obvious. All of the things that we had in my grad group, the structure, you know, we were so seamless going from being in person with our meetings to an online platform because we had so much community built within the group already. Um, you know, they reached out to each other. They went for walks every day, stuff like that, right? Doing social distancing just because they just missed each other. And I, you know, we went to Zoom for our platforms online, like for our meetings. We never missed a beat, right? And nobody ever seemed really stressed. And yet I was seeing other people and seeing stories online. 
about how faculty just dropped off the face of the planet and grad students felt like they were floundering. And I was like, okay, I think this is much bigger than just a COVID specific problem. We need to try to take some of the things we've learned and try to help faculty learn from that. And so um, my best friend is faculty at Nebraska, Mary Janowski, and we met in grad school together back at NC State. And she and I have very similar mentoring philosophies and yet take very different approaches. We have very different strengths. We're very different types of personalities. And so I coerced her into joining it on uh, the podcast with me in part because I knew she had excellent editing skills. Okay. <laughs> That's important. That's a big part of a podcast. Absolutely. So yeah, the rest is history. We either occasionally interview people who have um, you know, demonstrated some mentoring success or we mostly just talk about the things that are on our mind, right? Like what's the things that hasn't been going well that we've tried to brainstorm? Really, it was like, she was my best friend at work who wasn't at my same physical location, right? So we would talk on the phone every day. And a part of that conversation would be, oh, my grad student did this irritating thing today. And we have this rule that's like, you can only complain for so long before you start spitballing solutions. Oh, and so yeah. we always had this, yeah, we always had this really positive outcomes. Like, okay, that happened. But like, why did it happen? How do we prevent it from happening again? What have we learned from this? Um, and then there'd be days when we're like, oh my God, they did this amazing thing. And you're like, okay, how do we replicate it? Oh. Um, and so sometimes our conversations are kind of like being on the phone with each other and we happen to be recording. That's, it sounds like a really great, I mean, just the format sounds good because it's like conversational. Um, but I like that bit you mentioned, like you're only allowed to be you're like, compl- I don't know if you use the word complain or not, but you know, you're only allowed to complain about it for a while. And then you have to find a solution. And I think that that's really valuable, not only from like a conversation standpoint, but just from like a problem solving forward momentum issue, just in general is like, you can only whine about it for so long, either fix it or be quiet. So like, I think that that's a, a great um, mindset. So you've been on the air since March. So you're like, like two years now on the, on the mentoring matters podcast, like, do you have a like a favorite episode or maybe a favorite guest that you've had so far? Uh, let's see. So one of our most popular episodes has been actually when I interview when we interviewed uh, Jan Worsema, who was actually my kind of teaching mentor at Iowa State. She actually teaches. She has like a small group that we've been meeting since 2010 every other week. Um, and she always says I'm such a weirdo because I have this really small teaching appointment, and everybody else in the group is like really high teaching appointments. And I was like, you don't understand. It's not just helpful for the undergrad classes, it's helpful for my graduate mentoring. Like I have changed the way that I do things with my students because of the tools I've learned from her. And so one of the things that she does is things like Myers-Briggs. And so we have this episode where basically we talked about tailoring a graduate student mentoring approach to each student with the appreciation that not all students are the same. So we used the Myers-Briggs and talked about personality types as a part of that. But I'm actually now like a Clifton Strength certified coach. I do strengths with all my students. Mary and I just put in a grant to do strengths with the Department of Animal Science grad students at both of our institutions. And so we're really passionate about understanding that we're not all the same. What worked for us as grad students may not work for each of our current grad students, but there is something that's going to work for them. So we need to figure out what it is. That is just so encouraging to hear that mindset because I feel like, I mean, I'm not, I don't work in academia. I haven't been in academia in a long time, but like, it's just seems like so much of it is, you know, you go in the program and this is how it's done and it's just get through and get done. And like, I just, as a, as some, as a highly empathetic person, I appreciate the concern and care you're giving to the graduate students because you're right. 
not everybody learns the same way. Like I have a six-year-old and a two-year-old. Those are very different children and they don't communicate the same way. And I guarantee they don't act the same way. And I don't think they're going to learn the same way. And so I think it's just, I just bravo round of applause for, for like realizing that it seems like a, a basic concept, but like you said, we're all different people and we learn differently. And it, it sounds like it's probably just a really rewarding experience to be in your graduate program. So that's awesome. A huge bravo. Congratulations to you on that. So, um, and that episode sounds really interesting. Um, the interview with, um, what, what was her name again? Tell me in her name again. Her, her name is Jan Wersma. And I think it's like um, something about tailoring our graduate programs to individual personalities or using personality assessments in our graduate education or something like that. So we only have like 24 episodes. So, you know, it wouldn't take anybody that long to go through them. <laughs> well, it's really important though. And I like while you were talking about the small group that the group that meets every other week and she had made the comment and I'm paraphrasing here that you have a smaller teaching appointment than all the other people in it. But like, just because you don't do something very often doesn't mean you can't do it well. And I think that you are, you are really encompassing and embracing that kind of mindset, whether you acknowledge it or not. To me, that's what it seems like is just because you don't do something very often doesn't mean you're not devoted to doing it really well. And so I think that that's extremely commendable. Thanks. I appreciate that. And I, I agree. I think, you know, that's so important to want to do well at everything that you do in your life, right? Like that's the tenet of my personality is why would I do something if I wasn't going to do it to the best of my ability? And I think that's one of the things that I try to instill in the grad students too, right? Like, why would you do this if you're just going to kind of, you know, only put partial effort into it, you should make full effort into it. And that's how you're going to reap the best rewards. Absolutely. We only get one. There's so many trips around the sun. There's only so many trips around the sun that we get. And like, if you're not doing your best or trying to like fulfill it to the best of your ability, like, you know, what's the point? So uh, yeah, I just, like, I feel all warm and fuzzy just hearing about how much you care about your students. And I think that's really important. Um, We've talked a lot about teaching and I know that you have, like you've mentioned, you have a larger research appointment um, and you have all these graduate students that you're mentoring. Um, So like, but what are you, what research are you doing with your graduate students? Can you share anything in your program that you're most excited about right now? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I like to say that the reason I got interested in minerals and vitamins, which, you know, is the stuff that we shove into one or 2% of the whole ration, and then we ignore it. We're like, oh, we met the requirements. I'm done. Um, (laughs) The reason, yeah, right? You can laugh, but it's true. It's funny, but it's true. And so, yeah, I, I get it. Yeah. The reason I love minerals and vitamins is because you can't throw a dart at a biological pathways chart and not hit a mineral or a vitamin cofactor. And that means that you can have the carbs, the lipids, the the protein, you can have that right in the ration all day long. But if you have even one of those micronutrients that is deficient, the rest of it falls apart. You know, if you don't have the right zinc to capture the protein synthesis, you're only going to get so much performance. And so the reason that... Um, that translates to feedlot nutrition in particular is because we are feeding a very different beast than a lot of our nutritional requirements um, would have been conducted on. So if our studies came from the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, today's modern feedlot animal is capable of gaining about 40 to 50% faster than calves back then, right? He's a different genetic makeup. He's much fatter now when he goes to market, but he's got a lot more beef on him. And we know that those cattle, because of their genetic potential, can really gain and can do it really efficiently and have less days in the feedlot because of it. 
but only if we figure out how to optimize his performance. So optimize things like his stress response after a trucking event. How do we help him recover more quickly? Or optimize that calf's ability to respond to a growth-promoting implant or a growth-promoting beta agonist. So that is kind of a couple of the areas that we're really interested in, the stress response. Um, and then we're also interested in how we can figure out the right kind of minerals, vitamins, or additives to sort of optimize the response to some of these technologies that we use, like anabolic implants or beta agonists. I think that, you know, you, at the very beginning, you were talking about how, um, you know, you can't throw a dart at a biological pathway without hitting. And I think that it's, I'm trying to think how to phrase this, like it's, it can't be emphasized enough how important vitamins and minerals are. So I, we, my husband and I have been ranching for trying to think of what year it is. So like seven years, almost eight years or something like that. And it wasn't until we got cattle that I, he knew this already, but I didn't, that I didn't, I understood like how important minerals are to like just basic metabolic function and cattle, like, like, like just what you said. I didn't understand any of that until I was like in it and paying attention because it's just not something that you associate with like nutritional success or gain or performance right away, you know, cause there's lots of other big things, but like, if you ignore this one thing, you know, you're, it's all in vain and it, it throws a lot of things off. And so, um, I, I don't know if I'm, I'm I, I would hope that there are not very many people like me who didn't know that <laughs> I would hope that people know that, but it's just, it's, it's worth emphasizing just like how important they are because like, like, just like you said, if you're off, you know, you're, it's all in vain. You're not capturing the most um, performance that you can. Um, you mentioned beta agonists, which is an interesting topic. And I don't hear that word very often anymore. Um, but let's talk about beta agonists because you do do work with those and research. Um, can you talk a little bit more about your research? I believe the beta agonist in cattle is ractopamine. Is that right? Um, can you, can you talk more about that? Any unique or interesting findings? I think that we're far enough removed from, um, 2013, I think whenever that incident was that we can discuss it, but, um, yeah, what, what kind of findings or research are you doing with beta agonists? Yeah. So the primary beta agonists that we would use here in the United States, um, would be ractopamine hydrochloride. Uh, so that's either going to be Actigain or Optiflex, depending on which company you get it from. Um, we would also have the new Xperior from Elanco, which is a beta-3 agonist. Um, that's kind of just starting to hit the market, so not as much research has been done with that. So um, ractopamine hydrochloride would be the one that we have quite a bit of research on. Very consistently will help to produce a carcass that has less external fat, which is good because you don't want all that fat that you have to trim off of your steak, right? And producers get discounted actually for having extra fat carcasses. So we don't want that. We want the fat in that marbling and that flex in the steak, not on the outside of, of the carcass. Um, and it'll make that ribeye or make the muscle actually grow faster. So it does that in part by, um, and we only feed it at the very end of the feeding period for about the last month, because that's the time when cattle are really getting um, exponentially fatter. They're just getting much fatter every day um, and it can get ahead of us. And so the tools like a beta agonist, like ractopamine, helps producers put more lean on that carcass, more muscle, 
and less fat, which um, results in usually some sort of, you know, um, definitely enhanced economic value, but also sustainability, right? So putting that nitrogen in the protein in the carcass, that's a much better place for that nitrogen to go than ending up, for example, in the environment. And so anything we can do to improve sustainability of the beef industry, and that's two of the pillars, both environmental and economic, that we can hit with ractopamine. And so ractopamine is a great example of a tool that, you know, we didn't have 20 plus years ago. And so none of our mineral requirements were ever established with the idea that we would have cattle who potentially could be gaining four, four and a half, five, five plus pounds of gain per day and doing it in a very efficient manner. And so this is one of the opportunities where we have seen things like zinc, so we can feed more zinc and increase more capture of that gain. And we think it's just as simple as saying that calf would have been fine at three, three and a half pounds a day with the zinc that he had in the diet. But when you feed that beta agonist and you kind of turn back his biological clock back to when he was more of a muscle making growing calf, all of a sudden he's not really prepared for that. And having the right amount of zinc to help support things like protein synthesis, we have lots of research now that says that will help capture and keep that protein on the carcass, which is obviously what we, where we want to want to have it. It's not a universal truth that all minerals necessarily need to be fed in higher amounts. So more is better. It's not always a great adage in mineral nutrition. We kind of want to be not deficient. We want to be adequate, but we don't want to have too much. Yeah. And, and the, the, the flip. This, yeah, exactly. There's a sweet spot. And the flip side of zinc, where we have really just kind of seen steadily increasing responses where we haven't really found a high spot yet for zinc, but it's also got low uh, toxicity risks. Copper does not seem to be like that. And in fact, if we have copper deficient cattle, they actually seem to have no beta agonist response, which is currently fascinating us. This is actually an active area of research for us. Um, basically, we did a study where we had cattle that had low liver copper, kind of adequate or mid-range liver copper concentrations, which is a very nice biomarker for their copper status, and then high, but not even what I would call excessively high based on some of the numbers I've seen, like for example, in the dairy calves. But in this case, the adequate or kind of middle copper guys had a very typical beta agonist response, about a 23% improvement in average daily gain Whoa. during that 30-day so that'd be very typical for beta agonists, right? Yeah, 15 to yeah. 20% improvement in average daily gain during that last month. That's why we feed it. Yeah. But if but if they were copper deficient, zero response, which is fascinating to us, right? So why does not having adequate copper mean that you can't have a beta agonist response? And we've seen it in a couple of studies. So we we feel strongly it's true. And we're digging into figuring out what that is to figure out how much copper they need. And then the reverse of it is also true. If they were, had high liver copper, they actually only had about half of the beta agonist response that our adequate group did, which would suggest that maybe something like oxidative stress or something else that we know copper causes in the liver might actually be inhibiting some of that beta agonist response. So I like to talk about zinc and copper for this case because it's kind of two sides of the coin where with the zinc, it seems like we can steadily increase. We see some nice protein capture. And with copper, we really need to figure out how to dial that in and figure out how to optimize that response. That is so interesting. I I knew the like beta agonists improved that feed efficiency at the end, but I did not know it was like 20%. That is fantastic. I'm assuming that also translates to sustainability, which is one of my favorite topics. If I ever go and get my PhD, it will be in like beef sustainability, that kind of realm. But I imagine that contributes to sustainability in the economic and like environmental areas just because and additionally, because like all of the feed ingredients are you're using less feed to get the same 
they don't have to be on feed as long because they're reaching that point sooner. I'm assuming that that's a sustainability tenant or kind of a benefit. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. And that would be honestly to us, one of the biggest benefits of figuring out what does this nutrient package need to look like um, in this animal to kind of optimize nutrients going into the animal, not going out into the environment and even just decreasing what has to go into the animal. And so the ractopamine, so when we start introducing, if you think about a feedlot that's had a certain ration that those cattle have been on, now it's 30 days before harvest, we're going to switch to the ration that includes ractopamine in it. We've always thought this is a really nice place to decide maybe there are other nutrients I want to change in the diet at this same time. So in addition to our work with things like zinc and copper, we've also done some work with um, a fermentation product, like a yeast fermentation product. So Nature Safe, that um, would be Diamond V, that did some cool work with them where we saw positive effects um, during ractopamine feeding and even without ractopamine feeding, where we saw improvements in average daily gain during the finishing period. And those were in cattle that were um, experiencing some compensatory gain, right? So there were some greener yearlings that had come in, yep, end of the summer, um, you know, about this time of year. And those cattle, as long as they eat and they put on a lot of frame while they were out to pasture, as long as they can eat, they can gain. And so we had some really high rates of gain in that study. And we think that's one of the reasons why we saw some of the initial benefits on even before we started feeding ractopamine, feeding the nature safe actually improved their feed efficiency And we saw things like it improved their antioxidant status. So that's one of the things that we've learned from the human literature. So again, a cool thing about mineral and vitamins, totally conserved across species. So if they learn something in a human or a rat, we can often apply it to the ruminant and not have to redo those fundamental studies. And so one of the things we know is actually muscle is very sensitive to oxidative stress. So like it actually has a demand for antioxidants to help support that growth. And that's one of the things that we think that the product like NatureSafe um, is doing because some of the other portfolio of products and work that we've done in others would suggest it positively affects antioxidant status. And it also has some really intriguing effects on immune system. So Jody McGill, who I've interviewed for this podcast before, is one of our collaborators. And she does blood cell work where she basically looks to see what's the snapshot of immune cells in that blood sample. And we have seen in our work and then her work with dairy calves that some of these products like Nature Safe or whatever the calf product is, um, where basically things like gamma delta T cells and natural killer cells increase. And I'm super not an immunologist and I do not play one on TV or on a podcast, but Jody, <laughs> right? Jody has helped me understand that those are some of the first lines of defense cells. And so in theory, it should mean that those animals are better ready to kind of have a disease challenge response in a positive way. That makes sense, right? Like, you know, being that like suppressed. And so, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, You were speaking, I've been thinking about this earlier when we first started talking about the beta agonists, you were talking about this uh, ractopamine hydrochloride. Is that current one? That's, that's Optiflex, but there was like a beta agonist three. Did you say that? Yep. Okay. And that just came on the market. What what are the, do you mind speaking about the differences? Because I'm intrigued by this, you know, how they're different and but do they achieve the same thing? If you don't mind talking about that. I should have asked that earlier before we delved into the minerals and vitamins about it. But there's I'm just so interested in all of it that. Yeah. So. So we really have historically had uh, three different classes of beta agonists that have been improved in the U.S. So ractopamine hydrochloride is a beta one. So it'll bind to the beta one receptors. But it also, based on the research, seems to kind of have a spillover effect and activate beta twos as well. That's important because most of the um, receptors on the beef muscle 
are actually beta twos. So swine are the opposite. They're mostly beta ones, but in beef, it's mostly beta two. So ractopamine seems to stimulate both of those. When we still had Zilmax or Zilpadrol hydrochloride um, on the market as an available product, that was a beta two. That's part of why you didn't have to feed very much of Zilmax um, because it was very impactful, right? With a very, relatively small dose. And that one's completely off the market now, right? Because of- It is off the market. Yep. Yep. So um, uh, Merck pulled that from the market. Yep. Gotcha. And then the other one would be the new one that's only been out for about a year now would be Xperior. And I'm going to say that because I can't pronounce the chemical name for it. It's like the Bubbergran or something that is very hard to pronounce. Sounds close enough to me. Yeah. Um, but that is actually supposed to be a beta three agonist. Um, and so agonist means that they stimulate or they basically activate. And then antagonist would mean it blocks. So the interesting thing about Xperior is that it supposedly turns on the beta threes, but it actually blocks beta ones and beta twos. So if you did a study where you fed Xperior and Ractopamine, you would completely negate the Ractopamine response by feeding Xperior. So it's a very inter- interesting product. So of course you'd never feed the two of them together. Right. But if you just fed Xperior as a beta three, uh, that company was very strategic. I think about how they did their approvals. They actually don't have a growth claim on it. They have a nitrogen into the environment reduction claim. So they essentially have a greenhouse gas claim and it's, but it's the same principle, right? It's so nitrogen stays on the carcass, less nitrogen goes out in the urine. It's probably through slightly different mechanisms, but to be honest, we don't completely know what those are. Um, And that's another area of research that we're really interested in, in part because Xperior has a much more flexible label. So when things like COVID happened, and all of a sudden we had cattle that had to be on feed for a lot longer because the plant shut down, or if we had anything else that brought kind of a monkey wrench into the system. The nice thing about having these different beta agonist options for producers is, you know, ractopamine has a label of 28 days to 42 days. We don't feed it more than that because the animal becomes desensitized to it. You don't get the same response for your money. But Xperior has a 90-day label, even though most people, right, most people are feeding it for 56 and then a four-day withdrawal. Um, But it's, again, it's got more flexibility, right? So when it's a different dose. uh, So yeah, I think it's going to be increasingly important for producers to understand what is available on the growth promoting technology kind of marketplace and think about ways to pair or kind of mix and match those depending on the type of animal, the type of market, what, you know, where you're kind of trying to market your animal to, what you want to do. Wow. That's, I mean, that 90 days, that's a long time, but it makes sense if, you know, looking back to COVID, like why you would need that to be a longer label. That makes perfect sense. So, um, well, thank you for clarifying the difference between those because like not everything is created equal and there's different um, levels of stuff. So I appreciate that because I was sitting here thinking, I don't, I don't understand the difference between those and I don't want to sound like an idiot. So thank you for clarifying that. Um, So that's kind of what you're doing now, like in the next five years ish, do you see any big breakthroughs with beta agonists or like maybe what you're going to like, do you think you'll know more about the copper, like when they're copper deficient and then they don't get any response to the beta agonist? Is that something that, that you're going to be researching like pretty intensely in the future and you hope to have an, uh, like a breakthrough soon? 
Yeah, I would say that um, it's definitely on the top of my most interesting things to research list. And I actually have a, a really great graduate student right now who I'm kind of molding into my next copper nerd. So um, he's got some big <laughs> shoes to fill with some of our prior folks, like Elizabeth Messersmith was our last copper nerd. Um, but uh, yeah, I think Jacob's got a lot of potential. So it's going to be really fun. Uh, we're actually going to be doing a little bit of preliminary work this fall with a set of calves that we'll have. And then we're actually putting in some grants right now to actually be able to delve deeper into this. Um, cause I didn't even talk about the fact that actually copper and zinc can affect each other's metabolism. So there's, I think those two in yeah. particular along, <laughs> right. Yeah. The, the research options are endless, right? <laughs> um, so yeah, we're really excited for the opportunity to help producers figure out kind of what would be the nutrient package to optimize responses to these beta agonists. And I do think, you know, we've already made feeding recommendations based on our, our zinc research. Um, and I think that's the phase we're moving into now with our, our copper research. That's, I mean, there's a never ending pipeline of research. I, I keep thinking like, are, are researchers, academics like yourself, are they going to run out at some point, like of stuff to look at? But I, I increasingly then I'm like, no, Brandy, stupid. They're not going to run out of stuff because there's new discoveries every day. Like what you're talking about, with, they have interactions together that the pre like, there's just a lot to research and we're never going to know everything. And so I think that that is simultaneous. That's pretty bittersweet to know that we're never going to know everything, but there's always going to be endless opportunities for research. So, yeah. Well, and that's, that's really true. And again, I mentioned before that minerals and vitamins are so conserved across species, right? So what we learned about zinc and rodents, we can apply, you know, at least potentially to cattle. And I remember back in like 2010, 2011, hearing these anecdotal stories from the commercial feeders saying, if I feed more zinc, I seem to get better carcass returns on my, on my ractopamine. And it's like, okay, that's interesting. And I was at a trace mineral meeting in China and watching somebody give a very basic, it was Lothar Rink. He does work on zinc and immunology. Um, he was giving this really basic biochemical presentation and he was like, Zinc inhibits this protein right here, and it results in this essentially beta agonist cascade staying elevated longer. And I sat there and I just looked at the student next to me and I said, holy crap, that's that's why zinc and ractopamine is having that effect. You're like, and we went back. It was a light bulb moment. Yeah. And um, so I actually came back and started to get some industry funding to dig into that. That preliminary data turned into um, two or three USDA grants now that we've had to pursue that. Right. So that 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 builds. Right. And if you don't go to places like that where you're like, well, I'm the only person here who works with cattle, but whatever, you know, you you maybe wouldn't have made that connection. So. I just, you're, I'm trying to think of the right way to, to say it. Like you, you dig down deep and look at like things that could be brushed off in a really small and they seem to have made really big impacts in the beef industry. So like you're a beef producer, I'm a beef producer. So thank you for taking the time to dig down into the little things to help both yourself and my, and me be like more profitable and have a livelihood in here. So I, I just appreciate people. Um, I am not someone who enjoys basic research. I am an uh, applied person. And so, yeah, thank you for being willing to do those basic um, things that are so vital to uh, being able to reach the next step of health or nutrition or profitability or things like that. Cause not everybody can or wants to do that. So that's, it's appreciated. Thanks. I'm happy to be a nerd for you, Brandy. I mean, yeah, I, I, that's not what I was, I wasn't calling you nerd, but yes. Self-identified nerd. Okay. So 
like I was when I was reading your about your bio earlier, I just it was a real struggle for me not to just like only talk to you about like all the non beef things that were in your bio because I found it so interesting. But um, I'm going to skip over the fact that you are a published fiction author. So audience listeners, if you want to go look that up, you can. She is a published fiction author. But what I wanted to dig in next to is um, we have a lot of similar interests and you it's apparently you love to travel. So I would love to know the favorite place you've traveled so far and then like maybe what's next on your travel bucket list. Oh, that's a good question. Um, I just learned you went to China. So that's super interesting. Yeah, not one of my favorite places. I super like my personal space. (laughs) I have heard that. (laughs) I would like to go see the Great Wall of China, but I just want to like go, go to the wall and then leave. Like, I don't want to do other things, but. Yeah, I have been there. It's, it's cool. Um, so I got really lucky in hindsight in 2019 that, um, so my friend Mary was invited down to Argentina to, um, run around with the group down there for a couple of weeks talking about forage things, which that's what her research is on. And she was like, do you want to come down on vacation? So I did a couple of weeks in Argentina and we hiked in Patagonia, which was amazing. I think my knee is still recovering four years later, but um, it was amazing and did some hiking that I probably would have never done if I'd actually read the trail description before we just started hiking. Uh, But absolutely gorgeous. I'm a big photographer. So that was gorgeous. We did a lot of really cool like Alpen glow and the mountains in the morning or like some really cool reflections of lakes and stuff. So that was really neat. Um, later that same year went to a mineral meeting in Spain and ended up doing hiking in the Dolomites in Italy Okay, for um, a week or so. And that was, was again, gorgeous. Like they have the cool, like they'll, all the places on Instagram, right? Like the blue lakes in Italy, like Lake Carisa and different things like that. So that was very cool to like, I just put together a whole itinerary based on Instagram. Googling this, Dolomites, the mountains in Italy. Oh, yep. Dolomites. Yep. Add those to my list. That's gorgeous. Yeah. And then later that fall in 2019, um, our original plan trip was to go to the Canadian Rockies. And so we actually did part of Banff, but as you get south of Banff and head towards the U.S. border, there's this, I think it's um, Highway 40 and it's called Kananaskis Country. And it's just big mountains, awesome trails, lots of vistas. And we were there in peak kind of um, fall, large kind of color season and stuff. And so that was a really, that was a great year. But because then, of course, the following year, I definitely did not travel. Oh, yeah. So you did the Pat- Patagonia in Argentina and the Dolomites in Italy and then the, the Bant- South of Banff hike all in the same year. It's 2019. Wow. Yeah. That's a lot. That's that's inspiring to travel that much. That's awesome. Yeah. And it was just, you know, so it's about opportunities, right? Mm-hmm. And so sometimes students will say, well, why didn't you go to industry? And certainly I could make a lot more money in industry than I than we do in academia, but the flexibility to decide when and where I travel is in my hands as an academic a lot more than it ever would have been if I was in industry. And, you know, running cows, having pets, you know, having other responsibilities, like I wanted to be able to control that, but I always wanted to travel, right? And so I always try to have this outlook of like, I'm definitely saving for the future, but if I get hit by a bus tomorrow, I don't want to regret that I didn't, you know, go do the big travel things that I've always wanted to do. And I've been lucky because I am a super type A travel planner down to the T, right? Like I want to get the best experience out of it. And my friend Mary that travels with me is like high adaptability. I'll send her a picture from Instagram. I'll be like, let's go there. And she'll be like, great. Tell me what dates. I'll put it on my calendar. Send me the bill. (laughs) It's amazing. 
Okay. Those all sound great. I was Googling. I Googled that. I can't say the word Google. I Googled Patagonia and Dolomites while you were talking and I was looking at images. And yeah, so those are definitely on the list. Hyatt, my husband actually is been wanting to drag me to Argentina for like a long time. And I just don't like going places that are hot, but Patagonia doesn't look like it's super hot because all those mountains. So I might be talked into to doing that. Um, okay. So what's next on your travel bucket list? Cause we can travel again. We've been able to travel now for two years, two and a half, something like that. So what's, what's next on your list? Yeah. So I would say, um, right now I'm starting to plan a trip to Alaska. We've been to Alaska before, but I have a couple of places I really want to go in part because one of the books in my fiction series is going to take place at a national park in Alaska. So obviously cool. I need to go do some research. Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, because all my books take place in national parks. And so um, I really want to go to uh, Katmai. So they have like Brooks Falls. You can see the Brooks Falls webcams online and watch like the brown bears, which are basically very, very large grizzly bears, um, feed on the salmon in the falls and everything. So I would really like to go to go there as a part of it. Actually, in my undergrad class, we participate in Fat Bear Week. Um, so they get actually homework points for participating in Fat Bear Week, which Katmai does to basically vote for the fattest bear. Because of course, if you're a bear, you go through this period of lots of overeating. Yeah. They don't get anything that tells them to stop eating during the fall because it's just like yum, 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 eat everything. And so they eat you know, the salmon and berries and everything else. And they want to become nice and fat so that they can pull on those fat reserves during hibernation. So I make my students do stuff about the biochemistry of that. Uh-huh. That's very cool. So Alaska is next on the list then. Have you been to Alaska before or this be your first? Yeah, we've been to Denali. Denali was so cool. You got to go at least three days because like you only see the mountain on average one out of three days. And so we had gotten that advice. So we were there for four days. The first day it was cloudy. So you couldn't see Mount Den- uh, McKinley. We saw 14 grizzly bears in like the 10 hours that we were in the park. Oh, were you, did you, did you stay on the bus or did you get off? Like, cause the bus like takes you in and you can get off anytime. Did you get off or did you just ride the bus in and then ride it back out? Yep. We got off and did hiking along the way. There's not a ton of hiking options in my opinion around there. And you're definitely the whole time going, God, I hope there's not a grizzly around this corner or yeah. I hope there's not a moose on the other side of this willow. Hey, <laughs> or, yeah. Actually, I do have a really great story from that trip. So we we're in Denali and we're um, on one of these trails hiking and we're kind of down in the valley and there's people up on the ridge. Of course, we didn't realize there was people, but so we're hiking along on this. And like you said, you just get on and off a bus when everyone passes by. So we're hiking along and all of a sudden I'm like, do you hear something? And we turn around and these people up on the ridge are screaming, there's a caribou on the trail behind you. Oh. And we turn around and there is a huge, right, huge antlers, whatever, and a caribou. And he is hauling tail towards us. And we're on this trail that's about two feet wide. It goes up a slope and then it drops down to a river on the other side. Oh, wow. And we're just like, <sighs> okay. So we scramble up the side of the slope. We're standing there. I remember I was holding my hiking pole out, like this three foot hiking pole was going to keep me from like whatever this caribou was going to do. And he just runs right past us. So we turn around and we wave at the people above us, like, thanks for telling us. Saving our life. Yeah. yeah, And it turns out they run to try to get the flies off of them. So like he wasn't being aggressive or anything. He's just running to try to get the flies off of them. Oh my gosh. Um, Well, that's a great story. We, um, we went to Alaska before we had kids. So that would have been like 2014 or 15 or something like that. And we got off the bus and drastically underestimated how hard it is to hike there. Like, and we're at the time I was training for half marathons and things. So I was like in pretty good shape, but it's like for the audience who hasn't been there, it's, 
it's not like hard ground. It's like smushy. Like you're not just like walking on like normal ground. You're walking and like your feet are sinking. So it takes more like effort. I guess, is it called tundra? I don't know what, it, I don't know. It's smushy and it's hard to walk. It is. And the best description I heard was it's like walking on top of basketballs. There you go. That's a perfect description. Yeah. And so it takes more energy out. And I feel exactly the same way. Like I love hiking and exploring, but the whole time I was like, please do not let there be a bear, like right over thing. Because we were there. I don't remember there being a lot of people around when, where we were at. So, I mean, we would have been like, you're on your own. Like there's not like a guide and we would have been, we would have been bear food. Absolutely. And so, um, yeah, it's it kind of terrifying, but also like a, a rush. We were trying to get back to the bus and like it's deceiving how far away things look in Denali I feel like you're like oh it's just that next ridge we'll just go to that one and like an hour and a half later you're like why am I not at the ridge yet and so we were like we're done we're gonna climb up the side of the the face or whatever and it was a lot steeper than it looks and I would never do that now that I have kids because it was quite quite um steep and stuff like that but yeah, I, I love Alaska. I'm jealous you're going back because I <clears throat> I would love to go back. I could go to Alaska probably every year. I, I just adore it. So, um, yeah, I, I love it. But I haven't been to what Katmai. Is that what you were saying? Yeah, so Katmai. Um, so it's it's actually really hard to get to as well. And they have like a lottery system to be able to, to get into parts of it. So, uh, But it's like a huge photographer's thing, right? Because you can photograph these bears fishing for the salmon at Brooks Falls and, and other things. So. So did you, have you hit the the lottery or whatever you want? No, we've tried three different times, um, but there are other things like you can just do like seaplanes in and stuff like that and just not be able to like stay in certain parts. Like, so you might have to just do like a day trip or something, but so it's probably so worth you're it. Gonna go, you're going to go to the, to Katmai, but you're just not going to get to go into the falls or something like that. Is that right? Or yeah, maybe. So I'm. When you're child, like planning for Alaska, you got to look at at least a year out. So I'm probably looking at like summer of 25 at this point because I think, you know, it's it's everything books up. Travel is really like logistically challenging. There's not it's not like there's a hotel in every corner. Oftentimes it's like a Airbnb or like a bed and breakfast kind of thing or something. Well, and the window of travel there to so that you're not like literally freezing and in the dark all the time. The window is pretty small, so you you know, you have a smaller amount of time. That's so interesting. We could talk about Alaska and travel the whole for another hour. Uh, <laughs> do you have anything international on your bucket list soon? Uh, let's see. I've been really lucky. I've been to some great places. I've been in South Africa, which is amazing. Uh, New Zealand and Australia. You know, the only continent I haven't been to is Antarctica. So I would really like to go to Antarctica just because I would like to be, I would like to complete that. Um, but the other one would be, I am, I would really like to go to um, Norway and go up to like Lapland and do like the Northern Lights, uh-huh. um, something like that. I think would be really fun. I was explaining the Northern Lights to my daughter because she, she's in, she's going into first grade, but she reads at a much higher reading level than that. So she had checked out a book that was talking, it had Aurora Borealis in it. I don't remember what the book was about. So I was helping her like explain what the words were. And there was a picture there. And she's like, what is this? And so I was explaining that to her and she wanted to go see them. And she said she wanted to go see them. I was like, well, we have to go quite a ways north at a certain time of the year. And so that like rejuvenated my desire to, to go and see them because it's just a whole big world out there to go see. And like outside of a corner, our corner of Iowa, or our corner of Kansas, 
to go see. And, and I want to see all of it. Well, maybe not all of it, but I want to see it. I want to see a lot of it, but maybe not all of it. It's time for our famous three. Well, that is all my like planned questions we have to you today, but I think you know what's coming at the end of every episode. We ask the same questions of every guest. Um, so I hope that you have, you know, like prepared these, but what is your favorite beef or cattle related book? Okay. So I have to say, this is really fun to finally get to answer because oh. every time it's interesting to hear what the guests say. I and I always want to be like, I also want to give my answer. Um, so I finally get to give my answer. Um, so, okay. So my favorite beef related book, um, I'm actually going to say the resource that is the Iowa Beef Center website um, in part because it has a lot of historical information. It's got some great fact sheets. It's the extension arm for Iowa State for the beef group. Um, but also they have links to blogs and other things. You can see what field days are coming up. So there's a lot of educational opportunities. Some of our students like will have smaller fact sheets that they've written about their different projects and everything. So I think the Iowa Beef Center is just a great kind of general starting place for all things beef. Gotcha. Okay. That's a good, re I said book and I forgot that the question is actually beef or resource. So that I messed that up. So you got to say yours and I actually messed up the question. So way to go. Um, okay. So the next one is what is a book that's not related to the beef industry that you are currently reading or is one of your favorites? Yeah, definitely one of my favorites is actually a book called Atomic Habits by James Clear. And um, I actually did this with my graduate student group last fall, and we just broke it down in sections. He's got four major kind of laws of building habits. Um, I love it for a couple of reasons. One, the writing is very concise. I don't like when nonfiction books are super wordy or give 15 million examples for everything. Just like get to the point. I'm a busy person. Yes. Um, and I think James Clare has very clear, clear writing. He's got a great name for it. Clear and concise. Um, he talks about when you try to build habits, that it's about choosing the identity of the person that you want to be. So you're going to eat a salad for lunch because you are a healthy person and a healthy person would choose to have a salad for lunch, probably with steak on it. Um, or I don't eat salad. Right, I'll just do this. Right. Or I'm going to be a professional writer. So I am going to write every day um, in the morning for an hour because I am a person who identifies as a professional writer. And so the students worked on personal and professional habits as a part of that. So Atomic Habits by James Clear. That's highly recommend. Good. That sounds like a really good one. Okay. And the last one, I have to always reword this so that it, so that it makes sense for me, but what is a trait of someone that you admire that has helped them be successful? That's how I should have said it. Yeah, I agree. That one's always kind of a tongue twister. Um, to me, I think when people have a lot of drive is something that helps them be successful. And that drive, I think, is so important. And we kind of hinted on that through several of the topics that we talked about today, Brandy. But yeah. thinking about um, finding your passion, finding what motivates you, and when, you, when that clicks it doesn't necessarily feel like you're doing work, right? It feels like you just kind of had this insatiable curiosity for, you know, figuring out the next thing for this thing that you're passionate about. And so I think a lot of the people that I've seen that have been successful have that drive or have figured out what it is that drives them. Absolutely. Yeah. So we have talked to, I, I, I think you're right on spot on with that one. I, in terms of like, I, I agree with, with what you're saying, but um, you're right. We have talked a lot about like, passion and it's been very easy to um like the passion that you have for 
um, mentoring and teaching and research and minerals and, and improving cattle, like outcomes of raising cattle, like your passion is palpable. And so thank you for, for sharing that with us today, because, um, that's not always the case. Not necessarily, I don't mean like with guests on the show, but I mean that it's not always the case that people are in a career and that they're passionate about it. You know, people go into different jobs and careers for a whole wide variety of reasons, but like when you're able to find your passion and then be able to do that day in and day out and get paid for it, like, I think that's a sweet spot. So I think it's pretty evident that you are in that sweet spot and able to pursue other things as well. So uh, it's been really great to, to learn that about you. Well, I appreciate that. I totally credit my my parents for that. You know, they both came from backgrounds where they didn't even complete junior college and, you know, kind of ended up in the jobs that were available. And, you know, they were and done with those jobs at the end of the day. And sometimes they struggle to understand why my job doesn't just end at 5 p.m. Um, and help them understand it, that it's a career. But also they always told me, like, you need to find what's going to make you happy. You need to find what's going to make you passionate you know, okay, you want to go to school longer, I guess that's, that's okay. Right. And, you know, and they, and they can see that, right. So they can see now what the benefits have been from that. Like I have an aunt who's like, you know, obviously older than me because she's my aunt. She's like, I want to be like Steph when I grow up. (laughs) And I love that. I think, I think that encompasses it, right? Like, like exactly what you said, figure out what makes you passionate, figure out what you love and just go out and do that every day. What may, I mean, that's a, an ultimate compliment is that someone wants to be like you when they grow up. I think that that's great. That's a really positive note, I feel like, to, to end on, sadly to end on. Um, it's not a positive note that's sad. Sadly, we have to end, but that's a good one note to end on. I'm like really stumbling today. I'm sorry, Dr. Hansen. Um, but that is all the time that we have today. And again, I appreciate so much you coming on here and bearing your soul for, uh, for me and your audience um, here on the Beef Podcast Show. If people want to find out more information about your research or about the Mentoring podcast, mentoring Matters podcast or about your book series, like I said, Dr. Hansen is a, a published fiction author with the series. Where can people find out about all the things about you? Where can they do that? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I write crime thrillers and you can find out about my books at yeah, at slhansenbooks.com. So that's the easiest way to find that. And in- then... Everybody. Yeah, so com, And then for anything kind of work-related, um, I've been working more on developing my presence on LinkedIn. So Stephanie Hansen on LinkedIn, you can probably Google stalk me there. And then um, I have Mentoring Matters as um, on all of the platform, podcast platform, Apple, Spotify, etc. cetera. Um, and uh, I think we have a Twitter feed. Mary does that because I think Twitter is the septic tank of the internet. So I don't... Uh, <laughs> Yep. Accurate. I agree. <laughs> I'm uh, I'm not on Twitter. Um, so yeah, I think that's all of them. We do have a ruminant nutrition lab site as well that students can find off of our animal science site if they're interested in um, reaching out for possibilities about graduate school. Awesome. Well, I have put, thank you for sharing all that. I For our audience, I've put all those things in the show notes for the slhansonbooks.com for her crime series. Um, beef and work related, you can find Dr. Hansen on LinkedIn. And then um, you cannot find her on what I call the cesspool of the internet, which um, Twitter, but you can find her. The Mentoring Matters podcast is on all podcast platforms as well as Mentoring Matters on Twitter. So that is great. It will be easy to find you. And once again, thank you for sharing all this with us. And it's great to meet you and get to know you better. Um, So yeah, I hope you have a great rest of your week. And for our audience, thank you for joining us. And we hope you'll come back and join us next week on the Beef Podcast Show.